before coming up. Nessia warned me that uh, she has a stuffy nose, so maybe she wouldn't pronounce things as well. And I said, that's okay, they'll have to listen to me for a whole hour. So, yes, in this uh, flu season, we uh, often think about health, and uh, the passage today does speak about health, but uh, not about the flu. When I was uh, going to guess 35 years old or so, maybe 37, I went to the doctor, and the doctor ran the standard sets of tests on me, and uh, came to me with uh, the bad news that I had high cholesterol, high cholesterol. That wasn't particularly surprising to me because it runs in my family. We tend to have uh, heart disease-related issues, high cholesterol. But for those of you who are not familiar with what that is, I have a diagram here. I did not draw it. And I'm probably not the expert here as far as explaining all the issues to you. But uh, cholesterol, as I understand it, is that yellow stuff that uh, flows through your bloodstream and sometime will get accumulated along the blood vessels. And the risk is that eventually it can completely clog the blood flow. And, uh, and that blood, so we usually think about the heart as something that's pumping the blood through your body. But the, blood also, the heart also has its individual blood supply to keep it alive, right? The, the heart needs blood, like every other part of your body needs blood uh, in order to get oxygens and nutrients. And if you clog that uh, blood supply to your heart, your heart will die, right? And uh, this is not just a problem for me and my family. This is the leading cause of death in the United States. About one out of four people in the United States will die because of heart disease, this being the predominant of those. So this is a serious problem. But it's not just our physical heart that we need to be concerned about. It is our spiritual heart as well. In Revelations chapter 2, John, uh, like actually Jesus here, is, is uh, writing or dictating a letter to the church at Ephesus. And Jesus says this to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So there's a lot of good things that could be said about the church at Ephesus. But Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And who is the first love? It is the Lord Jesus. And what the Lord Jesus was saying, I see you have a heart problem. And the heart problem is that You've forgotten your love for me. You don't love me like you used to. And because of that serious problem, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And what the Lord says will happen to them, he will take away their testimony. The death of the church of Ephesus 
was, was before the Lord Jesus, and he was considering the death of that church because of the heart problem. And that is the main problem today for churches too, not just a long time ago. And it is the main problem for Calvary Bible Chapel. We have lots of problems as a church. All churches have problems. But the biggest single issue that will end this church is our heart for the Lord. By that, we will stand or fall. What can we do about our heart condition? So my heart, my cholesterol wasn't so high. So there's different things that can be done about cholesterol including medications you can take. But uh, my doctor did not advise to immediately go to medicine. They first advised a diet. They advised what might be called hot food. And uh, there's a picture of it. Uh, for those of you who enjoy uh, steaks and hamburgers and fries and pizza, this might be bad news. But this is the kind of food that is supposed to be healthy for your heart, those who are wiser than I told me that. I think there's some others that can go on their list, like fish. Uh, that kind of started our routine of having fish about once a week in my household. Not because we love fish so much, but because we love daddy so much that uh, we're eating fish once a week. And uh, the Lord has something similar to us. He has something that's designed. So as I understand it, what, what this is, uh, it's supposed to, in some way, reduce the amount of cholesterol in your blood. Uh, and now cholesterol is something natural. You know, eating meats and other things is a natural thing. Um, but eating this healthy food is supposed to help somehow keep your heart healthy. In our, uh, during our lives, we come into many trials, uh, a lot of filth, uh, whether it is uh, watching TV or at work, uh, at home. Uh, in our own hearts. There's all kinds of ways in which sin comes into our life and uh, tends to cool that love for the Lord that came into our lives when we first understood what he did for us on the cross. That's why we love the Lord. It's because of his, what he did for us. Right? We love him because he first loved us. And what he prescribes is what we were doing this morning, uh, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, is designed by him as a means to regularly refresh our love for him. If you would, you know, take all that sin, that crud that's coming into our life and cooling our love for him, the Lord has a program. He has, some people call it a sacrament uh, or a tradition, something we do every week that is designed to keep this love fresh. And that's what we're going to be studying today. Uh, the letter, uh, we're reading the letter to the Church of Corinth, is dealing with all kinds of issues and problems in that church, and one of those issues and problems is how they were keeping the Lord's Supper, how they were remembering the Lord in the bread and in the cup. So we want to learn from them. Again, we're looking at the letter to the Corinthians, not to criticize the church at Corinth, but to learn from them, but to learn from them. So what can we learn about the Lord's Supper? Nessia already recited the passage. I'll go ahead and I'll just read the portion that pertains to what I will cover next. And the first portion really is about how not to practice the Lord's Supper. This is what you don't do, okay? 
Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So first of all, to understand what's going on, we need to uh, understand that in the early church, the first churches did not celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do now. They went back, and I can understand it. I have kind of a picture of the Last Supper. The Lord uh, gave the Last Supper the instruction to break bread and to drink of the cup at an actual meal. They had an actual meal. In fact, it was the Passover meal. And at the very end of that meal is when he took the bread, he broke the bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it in remembrance of me. So it was part of a meal. So perhaps not surprising, the early church first adopted the tradition of actually having a meal. And in the midst of that meal or at the end of that meal is when they they broke the bread and, and, and drank the cup. A very understandable considering uh, where this context came from. Now, to, to make a point against that is, uh, first of all, the Lord saved the breaking of bread for the very end. They were actually done with the meal. So the Lord never said you have to do it as part of a meal. And in this passage today, he actually, we have warnings against making it part of a meal. Okay? But... During the time at Corinth and in many other places, the Lord's Supper was celebrated as an actual meal. They came together and they had food together. They ate a meal together. So here's how not to do it. First of all, in the church in Corinth, there were divisions. We learned about that in the first chapter. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you say, says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So first of all, there were these divisions. It seems that people had their favorite teacher or who they thought their favorite teachers were. They had some pet doctrines. And as a result, when they had this meal, they didn't all sit together. They each sat in their own group. You know, everybody for Paul, sit over here. Right? Everybody for Apollo, sit over here. I mean, you have division in the church before the meal starts, right? I mean, that's not, you don't see it in the Lord's Supper, right? You don't see, you know, here's the Peter group and here's the John group. They all ate together, right? It was a meal of fellowship to draw the believers together. Okay, so that was the first problem. Uh, second, it says that in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. So ideally, if we're having a, a church meal, we all eat together. Uh, but yet here, um, we have Matt. He, he picked up some nice food from uh, Taco Bell. 
uh, for the meal. And, uh, you know, here's Gary. He picked some, something from In-N-Out. And, uh, you know, they're starting to eat before the rest of us even arrived. And, you know, my family, uh, you know, we were thinking, you know what, other people bring food. So, you know, we don't have to bring food this time. We'll just enjoy uh, the food that other people bring. But, uh, you know, there's Matt, and he's, you know, wiping and say, sorry, I don't have anything. And Gary says, sorry, I just bought enough for me and for my family. And so we're going to be sitting here hungry, you know, waiting for the Lord's supper to start, for someone to break the bread and the cup. So, I mean, this is not helping, right? Uh, then it says, so I covered the fact that somebody was hungry. Um, and then the next, someone was drunk. Someone is having such a good time. They brought so much food, so much wine, and because they're not sharing, you know, this person is just plastered. And here we are getting together to remember the Lord and what it is the Lord done for us. The church is in shambles. <laughs> and so Paul says, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. This is not helpful. Right? It's not helping anybody. And then he, he, he lays specific issues with the practice. He says, have you no houses to eat and drink in? And I think the point he's making there, look, the Lord did not institute the Lord's Supper to uh, satisfy your physical needs, right? I mean, we're not having this gathering of the church because you're hungry and because you need to eat. You have houses to eat in. You know, best to my knowledge, Corinth was a relatively prosperous area. There's no reason why anyone should be going hungry. Now, if there is, if someone is in real needs, certainly, you know, you can let your needs be known and, and the deacons can perhaps help. But we're not gathering for the Lord's Supper because, you know, we don't have any food to eat at home, right? Eat, take care of your needs at home. Uh, then he says, oh, do you despise the church of God? And I'm thinking of someone who's drunk. Uh, how are you helping? You know, here we are, we're gathering, gathering, ga gathering, gathering? Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, together in the Lord's name, right, to worship the Lord, and somebody is drunk, you know, and I don't know, singing, talking, not making a lot of sense. How are you helping, brother, the meeting of the Lord? You know, isn't, isn't the church of God of more value than for you to come and get drunk in our midst and spoil the meeting for the rest of us? And, uh, and shame those who have nothing. Now, granted, uh, coming to the, to the meeting without any food myself and expecting others to share with me wasn't very considerate of me toward others. Other people not sharing their food with me you know, is not very considerate toward me. I can imagine uh, sitting with my family and, you know, we're hungry and looking around us and, Dad, why didn't you bring any food? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be at the right, uh, the right mindset to worship the Lord, right? So, so yeah, all of that is very non-conducive to doing what the Lord had in mind for the Lord's Supper. So how is it that we are to remember the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And I want to stop there because something interesting about Paul saying it, he was not in the room with Jesus and the 12 disciples. 
And, uh, and yet he says that he personally received it from the Lord. How could Paul personally receive it from the Lord? Well, the Lord revealed it to him directly. Uh, we're, we're aware of the fact the Bible teaches that Paul, after his conversion, went to the desert, and there the Lord Jesus spent one-on-one -on -one time with him. And the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul at other times as well. So there were direct revelation. But the fact of the matter, the Lord's instruction for us to keep the Lord's Supper was not limited to that single event where he told the disciples, by the way, I think this is a good idea. Why don't you guys do it afterward in remembrance of me? Right? Because he makes a special point of re revealing it separately Paul, to Paul at another time. This is what you need to teach the churches. As you're going and planting churches, it's important that they know it. Why? Like I said, because it's this heart food. It's something we need for our Christian heart. We need this regular breaking of bread. And then he gives the instruction, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we, we just went through the process. We just took bread and we broke bread uh, in the last hour. Why does the Lord Jesus have us break the bread? Well, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. What does it mean that the body of the Lord Jesus was broken for us? This will not be um, a thorough study into the subject, but to uh, look at a couple of passages in scriptures first, we have it for us in Matthew chapter 27. And here we come to the end of Jesus's trials. He actually had several trials, but here is the very last one. He was standing before the governor. And uh, the governor has kind of this last effort to release Jesus makes an offer to the Jewish, to the multitude, uh, and saying, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? Because I will let one of them go free. Irrespective of the fact Jesus might be guilty in your sight, I'm willing to let him go. Just choose him over Barabbas, a known criminal. And uh, the multitude choose Barabbas. And uh, I think about all the hurts that came upon Jesus, and we don't, we talk about the breaking of the body of the Lord Jesus. I think there's an aspect for it that is more than just physical. I think there is the emotional aspect as he was being betrayed, <coughs> as he's mentioned in this passage by a close friend, as he was being uh, deserted by his followers. Peter himself denies him three times that night. Uh, the religious leaders have a false witness after false witness coming before him, eventually resorting to illegal means to convict him. And uh, they abuse him too. They spit at him and they beat him. And then they take him to the Romans who, who will do the same treatment to him here. But here again, his own people. So now we're not even just talking about the religious leaders. We know they were envious of the Lord and his success. But his own people, the Jewish people, we want a criminal instead of this guy. And and uh, Pilate says, what shall I do with him? Crucify him. What would it have been like for the Lord Jesus to hear, this is the will of my people, that I be crucified. For what? For healing them? For teaching them? For blessing them for three years? This is what they want of me. 
but it's not about that that we're talking. We're focused on the physical aspect of the breaking of the body of the Lord Jesus. And so we have at Matthew 27, verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them. Barabbas is now released. He is given to the Jews. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So here we have, in short words, when he had scourged Jesus. Scourging is an instrument like a whip, but it has at the ends of it sharp bones or stones or nails. And they would whip a person with that. And you can just imagine how that would rip the flesh off someone. This is a weapon designed to inflict pain and harm. And it was used on the Lord Jesus. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. So this is extra. It's not clear to me that the governor ordered it, but uh, these cruel soldiers, representative of humankind, have a helpless victim at their hands, and they have an opportunity. They know that he claims to be the king of the Jews, so they thought they'd have a little fun with him for saying that. And they stripped him, they took his clothes off, and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. I have rose bushes in front of my house. Um, and uh, a week ago, I went through trimming them. And inadvertently, you know, and I, I wear thick gloves. Uh, and I use clippers, so I won't have to come into much contact with it. But still, occasionally, a prick gets through, and it hurts. And it's just a single prick on a finger. And yet, in the case of the Lord Jesus, there was a deliberate twisting of thorns together into a crown, and the crown was placed on his head. And I don't imagine it was placed gently on his head. And a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him. Have you ever been spat on? I've been spat on when I was with Jews for Jesus in New York, just handing out leaflets to people. And, uh, and someone spat on me, maybe more than a single person spat on me. It's not a nice feeling. Uh, but again, it was just a single person. And here the whole garrison is spitting at him from close range. and took the reed and struck him on the head. I imagine that was to inflict further wounds associated with the crown of thorns. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. We don't have a detailed description of the crucifixion in the scriptures for various reasons, uh, one of which it was such a common practice at the time, you probably did not need to describe it. I think the people at the time knew what was meant when you said you crucified someone. But uh, we understand that they drove nails into his hands and into his feet. They crucified him, nailed him to a, a piece of wood, and then the piece of wood would have been lifted up 
and then dropped in a hole. So it could be standing, and that jerk motion would be ripping the wounds in his hand and in his feet, uh, likely also dislocating some of his bones in the process. Uh, and in all that pain, my understanding, what really kills a person who is crucified is actually suffocation because you cannot breathe as you're hanging from your hand, and so you'd need to be pushing up with your feet on the nail that's, that's attaching your feet to the cross uh, in order to take a breath. And you can imagine the agony in your body from the effort of lifting itself up to take a breath. That's just one breath. And then there's the next breath, and the next one, and the next one. And how long are you willing to agonize yourself before fatigue brings you to the point where you will no longer lift yourself up and then you will finally die from suffocation. We have just one other passage to turn to in this subject and that's Psalm 22, written about a thousand years in advance. And yet somehow the Lord communicated to David the psalmist the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. And in just a portion of it, I think it captures some of the agony that the Lord Jesus felt on the cross, starting in verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the Lord Jesus was brought to the very end of life, and there he expired on the cross. And one would ask, why, Lord, why did you come down from your throne in heaven to die in such a miserable way here on the earth? And the Lord's answer was, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken, for you. So it was for you and for me that the Lord Jesus died in this manner. We talked about it this morning. Our sins deserve the judgment of God. And yet God in his mercy over us would spare us the judgment against our sins and he would accept a substitute. And the Lord Jesus came to be that substitute for you and for me. And so his suffering on the cross was for you. It was an act of love for you. In 1 John 4, 10, it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here we have the purpose of the breaking of bread. The Lord Jesus loved us in this manner 
And when we come to know him, we understand this love for the first time. And something wonderful happens. It says in verse 19 of 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved. We loved the Lord Jesus because of his love for us. Our love to the Lord Jesus, even though we may have wished it to be otherwise, is not original, it is responsive. We do not out of ourselves love him. It's only because he loved us first that we love him. It would be like a, a man courting a woman and the woman has no interest in the man at all. Yet as the man is courting the woman, he reveals to her how much he loves her. And then she is struck by his love and she loves him back. In the same way, we love the Lord Jesus only because he first loved us. It's not natural for us to love him. It's the result of understanding that he was willing to go to the cross because he loved me. That stirred up love in my heart for him. And that is the key for the breaking of bread. It is a reminder of the Lord's love for us in order to freshen up our love for him. Again, it's like those blood vessels uh, going to our heart and all that cholesterol is building up and we need a cleanser to come through and get rid of that blockage to that blood supply to our heart. And that's what the breaking of bread is doing. It's clearing all the debris, all the stuff during the week perhaps that's accumulated and led to us forgetting the Lord, forgetting how much the Lord loves us. That's the goal, that's the purpose of the breaking of bread is to restore to us an appreciation of how much it is that the Lord loves us so that we in return could respond with love for him. And the Lord continues, and he said, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as this do, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we have the bread representing the body of the Lord Jesus. We have the cup representing the blood of the Lord Jesus, but it's interesting that the passage says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I uh, bought, uh, purchased a house about six or seven years ago, and when I purchased the house, uh, the real estate agent brought me documents to sign. And it, it was a ridiculous number of pages. I think there were 20, plus pages I had to sign, some pages requiring more than a single signature. Why? Because it's the signature that makes the transaction inalterable. The bank is about to give me hundreds of thousands of dollars. Somebody is about to turn over the house to me. And they want the deal marked indelibly. Make sure there's no possible way for me to go back and say, well, you know, sorry, I don't really want your house, or sorry, I don't really want your money, or sorry, I'm not giving you the money back. You know, they want to make sure this is really solid, which is understandable. In the Old Testament, and, and possibly in, in various ancient cultures, they had the tradition of, uh, of sealing a covenant with blood. 
for example, when Abraham, and I think it was uh, Elimelech or Abimelech, I forget the name of the, of the king of Ashur, he, uh, they made some sort of a covenant. After they made the covenant, they killed the lamb. And it is almost a sense in which the sacrifice makes the covenant inalterable. Here's the lamb. We agreed the lamb now died. Can you restore life to this animal? You can't. This is uh, an act that cannot be gone back over. It's inalterable, right? So in a similar way, the death of the Lord Jesus is, makes the covenant that God made, made with us inalterable. It can no longer uh, be changed. What is the covenant that God makes with us? The word covenant is often translated testament. That's why we often call it the New Testament uh, as well. In 1 John 5, he says, and this is the testimony. This is the testimony of God. This is what God reveals to us. This is our covenant with him. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So the cup is designed to really show us the, uh, the fact that God's uh, offer of eternal life for us is solid and it's irrevocable, right? If God wasn't sure he wanted to give us eternal life, would he have sent his son to the cross? No, that's a, that's a move that cannot be taken back. The son of God has suffered on the cross the penalty for your sins. God is not going to take away the gift of eternal life that he promised to anyone who would receive his son. Right? If you receive the Lord Jesus as your personal savior, you have eternal life that cannot be taken away from you. God will not take it away from you. Right? And our worship and our love for God is to some extent, extent grounded in that confidence. If we lacked confidence that we had eternal life, if we thought God could take away his eternal life, or God wasn't sure he wanted to give us eternal life, it would take away our power of worshiping him and loving him. It's only with the solid knowledge that, that he paid the debt right, that I had and that I now have eternal life because the Lord Jesus went to the cross and I've accepted him as my savior. That is the key, again, for a healthy heart, a heart that loves the Lord, grounded in what he has done for me. Okay, finally, Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I have pictures in my office, also to be known as a cubicle, uh, of my family. And uh, why do I have a picture of my family there? Well, you know, are they a lovely family? Yes, they're a lovely family. I like the picture, yes, I like the picture. But it makes me think about them when, when I'm at work. It makes me think about them. I don't think about the picture, I think about them. And the fact that I'll be going home in a few hours and there my lovely family will be. 
right? And I'll get to enjoy spending time. It, it's an incredible motivation for me when I'm at work, right? I'm not there principally for myself. <laughs> I'm there for my family. And, uh, and so when we celebrate the breaking of bread, it's not that we're so enamored with the picture. We're enamored with the person of the Lord Jesus who's behind the picture. This is what the Lord Jesus added after he broke bread with his disciples for the, in, the, in the Lord's Supper. He said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you get the sense of expectation? The Lord was looking forward to having another meal with his disciples for drinking yet again of the fruit of the vine. Right? It was, to them it was something special. Drinking of the fruit of the wine, vine was one of the highlights of the day, of the week. And the Lord Jesus says, I will not do it until I get to do it with you. Because he was looking forward to that meeting. And whenever we break the bread, the hope that the Lord has is that we're looking through that breaking of bread to our meeting with him again in heaven and being with him again. And that's the final key for cleansing our veins from all that cholesterol, right? All those things that are cooling our love for the Lord. Think about the fact we will be with him again and soon. Okay, what's the danger of eating in an unworthy manner? And that leads us toward the end of the passage. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. About eight months ago, my wife went to visit her sister who just had a, a brand new baby. And uh, so I was home alone with the three of the four kids. My wife took Nessia with her. And, uh, and as I was walking in my bedroom, I noticed my wife's desk. I have a picture of it. This is so I don't get in too much trouble. And I was like, you know, this desk is kind of messy. I should clean it up. What a wonderful surprise it would be for my wife when she comes back from this trip and finds her desk is all cleaned up. And so I start going through it and pulling papers and stuff and you know, laying it all on our beds. We have a queen-size bed, so kind of lots of room to arrange and try to decide what stays and what goes. And I think my daughter Eliana came by and said, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this is great. You know, finally, you know, Jan will have a clean desk. And uh, so after I finished cleaning everything, 
and you know, throwing away the stuff that you know, definitely she wouldn't want to keep. And uh, you know, the stuff that I think that she may want to keep, you know, I stuck in an orderly manner. I was thinking, you know, there's a chance I made a mistake here. So I go to the store and I buy, you know, some roses. And I, I put them in a vase and I put them on the desk. It's not just clean, it has, you know, nice smelling roses on it. She, she must be happy now. So as you imagine, my wife comes back home and she's not delighted with what I did. And she says, where's my stuff? And, uh, and then I realized that me and my wife are not completely aligned on what's precious and important, right? There were some old assignments of the kids from school, maybe a couple of years ago. You know, a drawing that they made or some sort of an art project. And I thought, it's time to let it go. It's time to let it go. And, uh, but no, for my wife, that was precious. And so I erred. I made a mistake in, uh, in my move there. The problem that the Corinthians had with the Lord's Supper is it wasn't as precious to them as it was to the Lord Jesus. And they were eating and drinking it in an unworthy manner, as we described. And it says they will, they, they, whoever does it will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The Lord Jesus was looking at the bread and he was seeing his body. This is my body which I gave for you. And, uh, and the cup, this is my blood which I shed for you. And you guys are drunk, you're hungry, you're divided, you don't appreciate me and you don't appreciate what I did for you. And so they were guilty of really a misuse of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus. And he says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord Jesus doesn't want us to not do it. He doesn't want us to say, well, you know, I don't feel like I'm quite, you know, as holy as I need to be, and so I'm going to pass on the, on the bread and cup and do it week after week and month after month and feeling, you know what, I'm perfectly justified in not partaking. You know, the Lord wants you to do it. He wants you to do it. But he does want you to examine yourself and make sure you're aligned with him. Do you feel toward the bread and toward the cup as he does? Do you see the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for you as you are partaking of the Lord's Supper? And if you do, then please partake. He wants you to do it. He wants you to do it. Now, we do warn people. When I was a new believer, I came. I, sorry, I was, I was not yet a new believer. I came to church because I was interested in a girl and I was willing to listen and I became interested in what was being taught but I was not yet saved and uh, I partook of the Lord's Supper one Sunday and, and Rick came to me and said, you know, let's talk. <laughs> you know, I'd like to know, you know, how you're doing, you know, what's your spiritual condition. And, uh, and I think I may have said something along the line, well, you know, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And Rick said, great, are you ready to be baptized? And I said, ah, oh, no, I don't think I'm ready to be baptized yet. And Rick said, maybe you shouldn't be partaking of the elements either, right? And uh, my son, Joey, I love him dearly. And uh, when he sits here at the Lord's 
supper, he sees the bread. And something about joy is he's always hungry. He's always hungry. And he just can't, you know, why can't I have some? And no, that's not what it's for, right? That's not what the breaking of bread is for. It's not to satisfy your hunger, right? It's about seeing the Lord Jesus. And until you see the Lord Jesus and what it is he did for you in the bread and the cup, you shouldn't be partaking of it. Okay, and then he adds, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And this is a testimony to me of just how strong the Lord Jesus feels about the breaking of bread, because the Corinthians had a lot of issues in their lives. And uh, so first of all, when a believer is sick, does it mean that he's sinning against the Lord and the Lord is judging them? No, no, otherwise we'd all be in trouble now, right? Uh, when a believer dies, is it because he sinned against the Lord and the Lord is judging him? No, you can die completely in the will of the Lord. So it takes a discerning eye to tell when somebody is sick or is died, is died because, of, because of sin, right? So first of all, Paul is making quite a statement when he is saying here that it's because of this that they, some, many of the Corinthians are weak and sick and some of them die. That's what he means by sleep, right? Now, take a step back. Okay, so clearly the hands of the Lord is judging them. But Paul, look at this. They're, they're divided against each other. They're proud. They're selfish. They're committing sexual immorality. Uh, you know, they're eating foods offered to idols. Paul, how do you know? that it's a breaking of bread. But the Lord, the Paul knows because the Lord has spoken to him about it. He knows exactly why the Lord is judging them, right? Or it wouldn't be here in the Word of God. And it's amazing to me that of all the issues in the church in Corinth, it was this, that the Lord felt the need to judge them about. Now, we want to be careful. He does use the word judge, but he then quickly shifts, he says, he says, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. What's the difference between being judged and being chastened? Anybody? Yes, yeah? Ellie? Chastening can be yeah, chastening is parental. It's designed to correct a behavior, right? So judge could be a final judgment. Right? Putting someone, um, you know, the capital, capital judgment, you know, somebody did something so horrendous that our society believes a person should be put to death. Um, that's judgment. But chastening is always designed as a corrective measure. I'll, I'll chasten my children because I want them to improve. Right? And the Lord Jesus was chastening the church in Corinth because he wanted it to improve. He didn't hate them. He didn't regret saving them. Nobody lost their salvation over the issue, but he wanted them to have a heart for him. The Lord Jesus loves us, and he wants us to love him. And nothing matters to him besides that. Like the church in Ephesus, they were doing all these good things, but they were missing that love. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm this close to extinguishing the church because you lost your love. And so here in the church of Corinth, he's trying to correct them before it happens. You need to love me. Nothing else matters. Right? I love you. I want you to love me. And so he is correcting them because of the failure to do it at the Lord's Supper. Be, you know, 
they're, they're keeping it, not keeping it in a way that's affecting their relationship to him, preventing them from having their cholesterol cleansed and restoring a heart of love to the Lord. Okay, uh, we're running out of time. There was just a, there's just some final uh, directives by Paul to try to keep this problem from happening. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So they are to do this all together. Um, I was thinking, uh, for me, one of the great blessings of the breaking of bread is the fact it's something we do together. Right? I, I remember once breaking bread by myself. Uh, wasn't that exciting? Uh, I don't know that there's anything wrong with it. But uh, here, I get input from other, you know, I'll think about something of the Lord, appreciate the Lord, but then other brothers will stand up and share, and all of that encourages me, causes me to appreciate the Lord anew in a fresh way and his love for me. So it's something to be done together. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. So is it wrong to have a meal and in the meal celebrates the Lord's Supper? No, there's nothing wrong. But because of the weakness of the flesh, because it's likely to degenerate in this manner where somebody, you know, is, is hungry and is partaking because he's hungry, right? Or in, in some way or another, sin enters the picture when you're turning it into a full-fledged meal. He says, just leave the meal at home and just come together for the breaking of bread. The purpose is to nourish your soul right? You have, you have your home to eat at. You don't have to come here to eat. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Again, just the impression of how critically important this was that Paul said, you know what? There's other issues. I'll deal with those when I get them. But this one, I want you to get right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it is so important to you that we love you because such is your love for us that you will have nothing from us except love. And uh, we pray for our church, Lord. We recognize that uh, we are just as liable as the church at Ephesus, church at Corinth, to uh, lose uh, that first love and as a result to be a dead church, Lord. We ask that you might uh, revive us, Lord. Give us a fresh love for you and help us uh, uh, live, live uh, a life motivated by that love. We commit ourselves to you. We commit the uh, prayer meeting later today to you that you might uh, assemble us again together, help us approach you humbly in a, in a way that you want us to approach you in order to, do, to answer our prayers and do great things through us. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.